we return to a vital issue that we started last Sunday about biblical repentance. And I want to start this by reminding you that today is a part two of last week. This is the heart of repentance, part two. And I want to begin this morning by reading for you a passage from the most famous, widely published piece of literature ever written, second only to the Bible. The full title of the book and the quotation that I want to give you is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which is to Come, written in 1678 by John Bunyan as he was serving time for preaching the gospel. And though he uses very archaic language in this, I think it's very important here in this opening chapter that Bunyan kind of scripts out for us the essence of true repentance and what that really looks like as he sets the stage for his story. It's a very long quote, but I think it's a very effective quote and necessary for our time together. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den and laid me down to that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamt a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. I looked, and I saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? In this plight, therefore, he went home and restrained himself as long as he could, that his wife and children should not perceive his distress. But he could not be silent long, because that his trouble increased. Therefore, at length, he brake his mind to his wife and children, and thus he began to talk to them. Oh, my dear wife, said he, and you, the children of my bowels, I, your dear friend, am in myself undone by reason of a burden that layeth hard upon me. Moreover, I am certainly informed that this our city will be burnt with fire from heaven, in which fearful overthrow both myself with thee, my wife, and you, my sweet babes, shall miserably come to ruin." except the which yet I see not some way of escape can be found whereby we may be delivered. At this, his relatives were sore amazed. Not for that they believed what he had said to them was true, but because they thought that some frenzied distemper had gotten into his head. Therefore, it drawing towards night, and they hoping that sleep might settle his brains, with all haste they got him to bed. But the night was troublesome to him as the day. Wherefore, instead of sleeping, he spent it in sighs and tears. So when the morning was come, they would know how he did, and he told them worse and worse. He was also set to talking to them again, but they began to be hardened. And they also thought to drive away this distemper by harsh and surely carriage to him. Sometimes they would deride, sometimes they would chide, sometimes they would quite neglect him. Wherefore, he began to retire himself into his chamber to pray for and pity them, and also to console his own misery. He would also walk solitarily in the fields, sometimes reading, sometimes praying, and thus for some days he spent his time. Now I saw upon a time when he was walking in the fields that he was, as he wont, reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, what shall I do to be saved? I saw also that he looked this way and that way as if he would run, yet he stood still because, as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. 
I looked in and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him, and he asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? And he answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment, and I find that I am not willing to do the first and nor able to do the second. Then Evangelist, why not willingly die, since this life is attended with so many evils? The man said, Because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Topeth or hell. And sir, if I not be fit to go to prison, I am not fit to go to judgment, and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Then said Evangelist, If this be thy condition, why standest thou still? He answered, Because I know not whether to go. And then he gave him a parchment roll. And there was written within, fly from the wrath to come. The man therefore read it and looking upon evangelist very carefully said, whither must I fly? And then evangelist pointing with his finger over a very wide field, do you see yonder wicked gate? The man said, no. Then he said the other, do you see yonder shining light? He said, I think I do. Then said Evangelist, keep that light in your eye and go up directly there too, so thou shalt see the gate at which when thou knockest it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. So I saw my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door when his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. What we have in this very descriptive narrative is the description of true biblical repentance. That is repentance through the pen of John Bunyan. And though the elements here are undeniable, as you could hear, many people in our culture today, both in and out of the church, would say that they have virtually no sin that they know to repent of. That there's nothing that they need to turn their wives away from. As I mentioned last time, according to recent polls in America, most Americans see themselves as no need of salvation at all because they have virtually no sin to repent of. Because we live in such a superficial age where nowhere is the superficiality of that more evident than it is in this idea of repentance and the realm of repentance. I say this because generally speaking, and you know this to be true, and we covered this last time, people do not want their conscience disturbed. People do not want their hearts to be upset by the message of God in Christ. And the reason for that is because it turns their heart into into water. It, It crushes their heart and makes them think of God, and therefore repentance is seldom preached. Deep mourning for sin scalding tears of repentance, souls virtually withering in agony because of their burden, you just don't hear that. Virtually un- and non-existent. And I say that because both the saved and the unsaved are not overawed anymore by the august of God, the august holy of God. They are not overcome by the filthiness of their own nature. They, they don't cry, woe is me, for I am undone. You don't hear that in the church hardly ever. Instead, you just have young people walking down aisles with kind of embarrassed giggles as they go to walk the aisles their preacher tells them to do while church leaders are just counting the numbers to make sure that their denominational status quo is met. This is vital for us to comprehend as we deal with this because repentance at its very core, first and foremost, is the recognition of sin. Remember, we talked about that, the recognition of sin, the understanding that we're sinners, 
that we are sinners and that we are personally responsible for our own guilt. However, the most crucial issue for us to understand for both inside and outside the church is that repentance doesn't stop at the mere intellectual level. It doesn't stop by just acknowledging that we're sinners. There's more to this than meets the eye. First, and I'm doing a little bit of review for you here, it's very important that as Christians we come to this topic with really appropriate concern. And I think we heard that even from Pastor John's message this morning about walking in wisdom and not being foolish. And the burden for understanding that is a mandate for all people. And the reasons that we must do that are because it's very clear in Scripture almost everywhere you go that that is what God demands. Now, the most classic passage that really encompasses the heart and soul of all of this is not found in a systematic theology, nor less. It's rather in the pages of the New Testament from the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians. And you can turn there now. We're going to be referring to it all through this message. 2 Corinthians is really what you have is the aching heart of the Apostle Paul poured out in joy before the church because... This is important. They first poured out their heart of repentance to him. He has joy in the writing of this letter because he knows that they belong to him. And how he knew that they repented and what he gauged his conclusions about their repentance off of is really what constitutes the bulk of the verses that we're going to look at today. Now, let me put this fully in your mind. I know I'm just kind of jumping into it because I have so much to cover, but I want to do a little bit of review uh, for the people that weren't here last week, and also just because I think it's healthy to have that in your mind as we go. Repentance, as you remember, can be seen, first and foremost, in two various lights, main categories, that we continually notice are a part of the Christian experience. First is the initial repentance, which I called capital R repentance last time. Capital R repentance, the initial repentance, comes from our original recognition of being sinners. And because we're sinners, we gave our life away to Jesus Christ and trusted him because we needed the forgiveness that only he can afford us. And so we turn from sin. And without a question, if you understand that capital R repentance, every form of repentance after that ultimately is connected to that initial repentance. So that's called a secondary repentance. And the secondary repentance I call the lowercase r repentance. Uppercase r is when Christ comes into your heart. Lowercase repentance is really the lifeblood of everything we do as Christians every single day. If you understand your sin and your, the issue of your life, you're turning from your sin. You're repenting from all of that. The man or woman who has first repented from their sin and followed Christ, entirely, their entire life continues to that process to repeat it day and day, moment and moment, to be with the Lord in a state of communion and not in a state of disrepair. So the greater repentance, capital R repentance, sets the stage for the ongoing repentance, lowercase r. And that's ultimately the explanation for why people don't really change. Think about it. Christians repent the entirety of their lives not to procure their salvation, not to gain their salvation, but to prove that they've been saved. We, we go on throughout life repenting in a lowercase r way because the, the capital R repentance has taken place. And you see this all over the Bible. Even in the book of Revelation, you don't have to turn there now, but I'll give you some verses. There's a rich example of where you see believing people needing to be challenged as to what is their real standing before God. Again, he's writing to the churches in the beginning of this book. 
In Ephesus, he says this in chapter 2 of Revelation, Ephesus left her first love and had to repent and turn to her first works or lose the privilege of her witness. You remember. Uh, Later on in chapter 2, verse 16, uh, we have a church forgetting her spiritual call, becoming guilty of sensuality. Even the church, between repentance and judgment, she had to make a choice. Thyatira in Revelation 2, 21 tried to undo the adultery and abominable practices of Jezebel and had to repent or suffer tribulation. Sardis, like so many today, had a name that seemed as if they were alive, but they were dead, said the Lord, and repentance or retribution was left to her choice. That's Revelation 3.3. Laodicea was an example of a well-organized but ultimately an apostate church, of today, where she had possessions, and though her greatest possession was Christ, he had been crowded out of the picture of the ongoing life of the church. So repentance for the church of Laodicea was her only choice for spiritual recovery. And I give you that. There's so many different models I could give you, because that was the case at Corinth. That's what they were experiencing there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, we see Paul speaking of the second ongoing repentance, the lowercase r repentance, if you will, because it flows out of this change of heart for those in Corinth who had already believed the gospel, loved Christ, and were living for him. And what we have been given just in this one chapter is literally a virtual encyclopedia full of insights about biblical repentance. And it's a clear outline that really details for us all the attitudes, all the qualities that you and I need to look for, not even in our own lives, but in the lives of others in the church that we love. And each of these, I think, are extremely helpful to us because they are, they're clear, they're vivid, uh, they are demonstrative, they, they are measurable truths. You can actually take these truths and look at your life and someone else's life and then gauge faithfulness of repentance or not by what you see. So there's signs to whether or not someone's repentance is true or false, and that's vital. And Paul grants them to us in this text because he's going to give us a glorious contrast between two different kinds of sorrows that culminate in two different kinds of destinies. Two different kinds of sorrows that culminate in two different kinds of destinies. And I'm going to read it to you. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, and I'm going to start in verse 8 of chapter 7. Paul writes, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. For I did regret it. For I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings about death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has brought about in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Let's end there. Look at that list that he's given to us. It's going to be an important list, and we're going to review each one of those attributes. But before we do that, before I go over each one of those attributes, I want to make some observations with you. I want to kind of get on the same page with this, and I think it's going to be helpful for us to understand what exactly it is that Paul is saying. It's going to be a little bit quick review of what we did last time again, but I think it's going to be helpful to kind of keep you up to date. Now, I want you to notice with me in chapter 7, 
Now, Paul uses here in verse 9 and 10, the word for repentance is metanoia, and I, I mentioned that last time. It's the basic word meaning the changing of one's mind, the changing of one's mind, the changing of how you think. In this context, however, because it is speaking to believers, it has also an emotional aspect to it as well. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines metanoia as the change of mind of those who have begun to abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces both a recognition of sin and a sorrow for it. So repentance thus far understood includes this intellectual recognition of sin as well as an emotional recognition of sin because Paul writes it includes sorrow. It includes sorrow. This is key. Biblical change does not come as a result of avoiding the sorrow that comes from recognizing sin, but through the embracing of the sorrow that sees sin for what it really is to God and others. Second observation that could be made as we're just doing some kind of warm-up here. Though it's true that the experience and depth of emotion in repentance will differ from person to person, there is still sorrow. There still is some degree of sorrow in repentance. Sorrow isn't the sole barometer to know if you have repented or not, and we've talked about this. Repentance is not the mere presence of tears. Just because someone is crying, you're going to see is not necessarily the truth that they have repented or turned from sin. Some people just have a very natural softness and tenderness in their heart towards sing in the world. Uh, some people, it's just easy for them to weep. For some people, this kind of liquid grief just comes upon them. They can, they can weep over another person's misery more quickly than they can even cry over their own sinful condition. They're, they're empathetic and compassionate. And so when they hear the story of the cross of Jesus, they feel sorrow. They do. They have legitimate pain, but their sorrow is because he, not because he died for their sin, but because he suffered on a cross. They see the suffering and it breaks their heart, but not because of his death on their account. And we know this because Paul even says in verse 10, there's another kind of sorrow. And he defines it as a sorrow with regret that produces death. With regret that produces death. This kind of sorrow is not a godly sorrow at all. It regrets doing the sin. It regrets being exposed. It regrets because of the fact that it was exposed. It's a sorrow that has regret for something that was lost, a grief for that which was missed out on because the world had something really to offer them and they didn't get to do it. They had to turn from it in a sense and it grieved them that they were caught. Worldly sorrow feels bad because it wants more of the world and not more of God. Sinful sorrow causes us to focus more on how we've been treated, self-pity, if you will. It's a pity party. It's feeling bad for ourselves. And ultimately, it's deadly because it produces this ungodly sorrow, resentment and bitterness and ultimately hardness of heart. That's what it leads to. It's a resentment for being found out. It's a resentment for not getting away with sin. There's a third observation about sorrow, if you're just kind of taking notes here this morning. A third observation about sorrow in this text that really is important, is an important distinction. Our sorrow is produced as a result of God's work in the heart 
and one is not. One is, a, is produced by a work of God in the heart, and one sorrow is not produced by God in a work of the heart. Let me explain this. The Corinthian people, look at the, let me section here, they were made sorrowful. Do you see that? It goes, that you were made, verse 9, sorrowful. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful unto repentance. It's not just the fact that you were upset. It's not just the fact that you had tears or that you were crying. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, I liked it that it made you, there is a sorrow that has made you repentant. So, Corinthian people were made sorrowful according to God. And that is the grief that leads to repentance. However, the sorrow of the world that Paul contrasts is not from God. It is from the world. It's the same way, and we've talked about this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. They're not from the Father, that's 1 John 2.16, but from the world. But also, there is a sorrow that comes as a result of not obtaining the lust that are from the Father and from the world. You have to break from those things, and when you break from those things, for whatever social pressure that you might be under or whatever people at the church, though you may not be uh, really uh, a sheep, you're acting as if you are, and so you turn from those things, but you resent having to turn. It's, 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 it's the age-old problem of the Matthew 7 issue that we spoke of last time. So this is so vital for us to remember. True biblical repentance cannot be produced on human terms. True biblical Sorrow cannot be produced on human terms. Both repentance in and of itself and sorrow that precedes it are God-ordained and God-produced. Does that make sense? It comes from God. He's the one that makes it happen. The Spirit of God is the one who produces this. And I think this is most tragically, you can actually turn there, most tragically illustrated in Hebrews 12. We go to the book of Hebrews. I want you just to see a real quick illustration here. Hebrews 12, 17. Hebrews 12, 17 is where you see the futility of tears without repentance. The futility of tears without repentance. Just in the verse 17, you you read this. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit, now we're going to go back and get this in context, the blessing he was rejected and he was found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, this is talking about Esau, if you remember the context here. The implication is Esau sought real repentance with tears, the tears that he w- and hoped that he would have found it, but he did not find it. You get that? He did not find it because this is not really what he sought. There's no indication in the narrative, if you go all the way back to Genesis, that Esau recognized his responsibility for what happened between him and his father or the depth of his guilt. There's no indication in the text that that's there. He thought only of the extent of his loss, the fact that he lost what he lost and he sought to reclaim the blessing. And so he cried because he wanted that. That proves his tears were not those of one seeking true repentance Immediately, he was foiled in his desire for blessing, and then he resolved, as you remember, to murder Jacob. Uh, So this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He shed tears, not for his sin, and I want you to wrap your head around this, but for his suffering for the penalty of sin. And you're going to see this over and over and over. His were tears of vain regret. His were tears of regret and remorse, but not repentance. There is a difference. So they're not God-produced. They're humanly produced. Repentance is of God. If you want to take down some verses to look out later, Acts eleven eighteen, 18, 
Also, Acts 5.31 show that repentance is of God. I spoke of this last time as one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, but Paul speaks of the slave of Christ as being the one who can correct people in opposition to the truth. This is 2 Timothy 2.25. And that God grants them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. God grants repentance, and God grants the sorrow with the repentance as well. So not a single tear that falls from the cheek of a violator, if you will, signals a changed heart towards repentance. That doesn't necessarily, it's always a part of it, but it necessarily isn't always an indicator of it. The rich young ruler, again, this is review, Matthew 19, 22, he felt remorse, he went away broken, he wanted eternal life, he went to Jesus with this in mind, but it wasn't a sorrow granted by God because he never repented. Judas felt remorse. We all know the story of the betrayer, but it wasn't the sorrow that God made because it never led him to repentance. He died as a violator. He, he died as a transgressor, Matthew 27, 3. So the idea here as we launch into this second part of what true repentance looks like is that it first requires an intellectual comprehension of it. That's just another way of saying, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize what sin is, and I'm capable of sin. And then it requires, requires an emotional comprehension of the weight that comes from God. In other words, it moves me to tears. Both have to be true. But how can you tell, and this is so hard, how can you tell on the outside that it's true biblical sorrow on the inside? How is that possible? You recognize that it's sin, the person speaks of it as sin, you try to validate the words of this, and yet the same, and they have tears, and and so, of course, it moves one to think this is true. This leads us to the last area of repentance that I want to focus on today as I unpack these elements, and that is the volitional element of repentance, the volitional element of repentance. More than a change of mind, though it must be there, more than a change of heart, Though it must be there, true repentance requires what? A change of behavior. Behavior. It changes the way you walk. Again, going back to the lesson of Pastor MacArthur this morning. It demands radical conversion. It demands a transformation, a definitive turning from evil, a resolute turning to God in repentance and obedience. So this is more than just a change of mind. It's a determination to surrender to Jesus Christ, to surrender your life. Your life is my life. My life is yours. And the behavior that comes out of that transformation, as the... John the Baptist would say in Luke 3, 8, is the fruit of repentance. That's the fruit. I can see the fruit of your changed life. Now, certainly Paul, as you know, was a Pharisee of the law when he was Saul in his former life. He was very acquainted with what to look for in repentance. We mentioned that last week as as well. Not only had Paul demonstrated himself the most deepest, profound level of repentance on the Damascus Road, But he was also ultimately aware of what constituted the teaching of the Old Testament and the rabbis concerning repentance. I say that just, again, to keep you up to date. There's several ideas in the Old Testament for the repentance that is likely that the most prevalent concepts that were understood by Paul were like naham, which is regret, allowing oneself to be sorry, which speaks of a sense of sorrow one may have even 
the comforting of oneself. And there's another one, sun suva, uh, to return, to go back or to come back. Again, this talks about the idea of leaving something behind and returning to God. These are Old Testament concepts that Paul was aware of. So Paul is so aware of this concept and these aspects of, of repentance, a godly turning, a, a godly sorrow, a, a, a godly turning towards God and away from sin, that he uses that knowledge to inform what he's write, written to us in 2 Corinthians in this 7th chapter. So that brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, which, by the way, I always say this maybe in jest, but it's so easy to remember this. Go into the 7-Eleven, you know. Uh, it's 2 Corinthians 7-Eleven. You know where you got to go. When, when you're in trouble or you want to know, you want to get a good, uh, uh, you want to buy some repentance. I'm just kidding. Go to 2 Corinthians 7-Eleven. Because it's here you see that a godly sorrow represents and produces repentance and how that true repentance is repentance that demonstrates, key word, not only in sorrow but in a changed life. Now, let me remind you, Real quick, of the context of what's going on here, because I think that in this section, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 13, 10, says that he wrote this letter, for this reason I'm writing these things while absent, 2 Corinthians 13, 10, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority that the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. In other words, what he's saying there is uh, the, the next upcoming visit by making, I'm trying to prepare you for my coming by making sure that things are in order in Corinth before he arrives, so he won't have to kind of flex his apostolic muscles when he gets there. And we noted last time that Paul had written them a severe letter. They call it the severe letter, where he had had to vindicate his apostleship to those in the church who were his opponents. And again, we, he did that, he hated that, and we reviewed that. There were intruders in the church They were people who were making special claims to like a superior kind of apostolic authority, and they preached a different gospel, and Paul knew about it, and they hated Paul, and they hated Paul's teaching, and so they just attacked him relentlessly. And though that was painful, that wasn't Paul's greatest pain. His greatest pain was those in the church that he loved, that he thought loved him, had sided with these what he calls messengers of Satan. So Paul writes a classic passage in chapter 6, and he talks about the need not to be bound together with unbelievers. You remember that passage. Um, It's in a section of Scripture. We tend to use it for Christian singles. We tend to speak of uh, proof texts that they're only to marry believers. But in truth, Paul's really not speaking to marriage there. He's just talking about a spiritual affiliation with false teachers, not to be linked together with them. And to the glory of God, the Corinthians do repent, it says in verse 8 and 9. In fact, according to verse 11 of chapter 7, Paul says that in everything, they demonstrated themselves innocent in the matter. So one of the key components, and again, as you're kind of, you know, finding yourself parachuting into this whole world of Paul, repentance is this demonstration of innocence. It's an expression of their total change of heart. And so Paul's not saying that they proved themselves innocent in that they had been wrongly accused of what it is that they had been accused of. They're innocent of the false charges against them. Some people think that. But rather, they're saying they were wrong. They were wrong. They had sinned against God, and they had sinned against the true messenger of God, the Apostle Paul. But now they wanted to clear themselves from any further guilt. That's the implication. 
they didn't just have like a heartfelt sadness for what they did, but a behavioral, visible, clearly understood turning away from sin. And Paul saw it, and Paul understood it. In fact, he says his whole purpose in writing them was, look at verse 12, for the sake of the offender, the one who had created this whole scenario, nor of the offended, meaning himself, he didn't write to clear his own name first and foremost, but that the earnestness on our behalf might be known to you in the sight of God. His concern was for their well-being. His concern was for their well-being because, as a pastor, repentance is not just proof to others that they had turned to God. It is also a sign to themselves before God that their repentance is true. It's a sign to yourself, I am truly a believer and I've repented and I know it because I see it and understand it in my own life. One more thing needs to be established and then we're going to go through these seven qualities together. Who is this offended and what is the offense? I think some of that needs clarification. And the reason I bring this up is because it's been the center of much debate among commentators. So just go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11, where Paul speaks here of a person who was punished by the majority. You probably remember this in your readings through Scripture. He was removed from fellowship through like a Matthew 18 process of church discipline, but he was never restored back into the fellowship, though he had repented. And you see this in verses 6 and 9. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, speaking of church discipline, so that on the contrary, you should rather graciously forgive and comfort him, lest such a one be swallowed up by excessive sorrow. But who this offender was has never really been universally known. And I think I'm telling you this, not to put too much information out there, but because it's just important historically to understand the circumstances behind this repentance. In fact, until modern times, it was always seen as the incestuous woman, uh, the incestuous, I should say, offender in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, who had sexual relations with his father's wife. Um, The guilty party had been excommunicated by the church, as Paul had demanded, which did it work, it did its work, it changed the heart by driving them to repentance, and now that person's supposed to be restored back to the congregation. You know, we've had that happen at Grace Church here. It's usually in the fellowship groups. I remember years ago, a dear gal here had uh, turned to a lesbian. She had left the faith, and people had followed after her. In fact, one time we saw her at a L.A. Dodgers uh, game, and came around her and were praying with her, and, and she just got her heart broken, and she's been back here at Grace Church probably at least 20 years since then, faithfully serving, and just completely turned from that lifestyle, embraced the Savior. So, so that's what's going in. There's a restoration in a group called uh, Working Disciples many, many years ago when I was single. Uh, we talked about it and restored the sister back into the fold. So the guilty member had been excommunicated, but now was restored. But recently, this scenario has been Rethought, and I'm going back now to 2 Corinthians, as maybe not that scenario, but according to the circumstances of the writing of the letter. And I don't want to get too technical, but there would have been a certain individual as seen as not the incestuous person of 1 Corinthians 5, but it's seen as the ringleader in opposition to Paul. This is the individual. This is the one that had maligned Paul, the one whom Paul spoke of in the severe letter, and they should discipline them to prove their repentance. They should be disciplined to reprove 
Let me say this again. In the severe letter that they should discipline to prove their repentance to him. That these people should. Either way. This sin that the Corinthians had repented of as a whole congregation was not there was the sin of not dealing seriously with sin. That's a pretty major thing. I'm coming to you as an apostle, the, that Paul is saying, because you're not dealing with sin seriously. How many churches today would deserve that call from the apostle Paul? I'm coming to you because you don't deal with your sin as sinful. Either way, this sin that the Corinthians had repented of as a whole needed to be dealt with. They had either turned their heads away from sin, saying that it was None of their business, I don't know. Or they were seduced by false teachers. So I hope that helps. That's the backdrop. That's the historical backdrop. Now, with that being established, I want to go through these seven terms. Uh, I've got 14 minutes to do it. And, uh, and for those of you that want to stay and repent, you can stay longer. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Uh, but I do want to get this out, and I think I can do it. Um, the first term he uses here is earnestness. <clears throat> earnestness. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and let's go to 7.11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing. Um, that's spode. Uh, that's a word that speaks of diligence and haste. And so he saw a marked difference in their lives, especially in contrast to the way they had been at one time, uh, the contrast was clear. Now their lives are demonstrating an attitude of seriousness. It's gravity about sin. They're conscious of how God viewed their sin, and they're now earnest in the fact that they're beginning to see life from a divine perspective. They were serious to, and eager to follow Paul's commands and to obey his words, knowing that what he was saying is from the Lord. I believe in God. I believe Jesus Christ is God incarnate. I hear your words, Paul, and I know that you're speaking the truth, and I want to follow you because I want to follow God. In fact, this word is so strong, so vital, that the noting of the repentance in some ways, the Corinthians, all these other responses we're going to talk about is connected to this first response. They had come to have a divine perspective about sin. You have to know that sin is real. You have to know God's view of sin, the one who made you and created you, who, who, who actually allowed you to be born, who allows you to be alive this moment and breathe and, and have your being. Sin is true, and it's, God defines what sin is, not the culture. There comes at a time in your life when a believer that you just have to start thinking seriously about sin. You have to. And that occurs when God impresses on your heart that your sin, first and foremost, is against him, right? Your sin, first and foremost, is against him. In many ways, the most profound example of that in the Old Testament is of a repentance of a believer, I should say, is seen in David, Solomon's father, King David of Israel. And I think it's such a powerful illustration. I want to go over it with you because it illustrates for us the life of, and an example of repentance as we begin to understand what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 7. Now, it's probably safe to say, and nowhere in my counseling is the need for seeing the signs of repentance more clearly put on display than in adultery. Uh, the sin of adultery, the crushing of the human heart through the very clear act of betrayal just creates in both people's hearts just emotional devastation both for the violated one and the one who violates. But to bring the violator, follow this, to a point where they're able to uncover the fact that the sin is there and they confess this sin as being sin 
is a much different scenario than bringing the adulterer to the point where they're able to repent of it. Because I see this all the time. People who have been caught, uh, Facebook uh, things that people have posted, uh, the wife finds out from the man, uh, the, the wife gives me the update, the man says he hasn't done anything, and as soon as this is brought to light, he weeps, he cries, he has to leave the room, but he doesn't change. He doesn't change. And you see, ownership is so different than just changing your ways. He wept, and we still had to take him to church discipline. We, and he's to this day disciplined out of Grace Church. For some time after David had committed adultery and plotted murder, think about it, he lived. He lived in a very careless manner towards his sin. It had been covered up. No one knew about it. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had allowed the murder of her husband Uriah to happen. There can be a time when we are so sinfully guided to think that there's not going to be any consequences for our sin that we just get away with it. And that can happen for a long time. That can happen for sometimes periods of people's lives, seasons of people's lives. And then out of nowhere, God just reveals the secrets of men's hearts, as he promises that he will do. At least eight months had passed since that happened. And Bathsheba had gone through her pregnancy. The baby was born um, unhealthy. Then the baby died. Uh, The funeral of Uriah had come and gone. And now David was the undisputed ruler of a great kingdom. And it seemed like God just turned his head, like God wasn't paying attention anymore. But if you look closely, we'll see that David began to come weak. He began to, began to come sickly and physically ill. He lost his joy. He lost his witness. He lost his power. And God gave David plenty of time to make things right, but he just persisted in hiding in his sins, hiding in his sins. And he come to the Lord. Had he come to the Lord on his own reconnaissance, in sincere repentance, things might have been different later on. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, says that Nathan the prophet comes to him out of nowhere and says, you're the man. You're the one. God has revealed your sin, and now your child must die. And David says, unmistakably, verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't mention Bathsheba. He doesn't, though he had sinned against her. He doesn't mention the husband, Uriah. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, this is a, there's a point where intellectual comprehension of the weight of sin and understanding that the discipline of the Lord was on him, that's for sure. And there was at that point also in David's life an emotional comprehension, if you will, of the weight of the sin as evidenced about what appeared to be his repentant sorrow at the moment of his confrontation. The Bible says his spirit was broken. But what was not evident, <clears throat> nor could be because of the beginning stages of this scenario, was the volitional comprehension of his sin as well. In other words, David would have to bring forth the fruit of repentance or not, and that he would do on his own without Nathan's assistance. So turn to Psalm 51. You probably knew that's where I was going to end up going. Psalm 51, where we have a record of this divine impression on his heart that was granted to him by God for repenting against the sin of adultery that he committed against Bathsheba, as well as the plotting of Uriah's murder. And I'm just going to read the first four verses for you. David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my inequity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. 
Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. This is the earnestness. This is the earnestness, the sobriety of David's repentance. He comes full force through these words. He had sinned against God. And then look at verse 11 of the same psalm. Do not cast away me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. The issue now to David was being cast away from the presence of the Lord. That's what mattered. I know what I've done. I realize what I've done. My brokenness is because of what I've done to you and you alone. And now I want to be restored to you. That's the irony of repentance. I, I don't have the time to tell the story. I'm going to do it anyway. That uh, when, when Jude was so little, he was just, I don't know, maybe he was three. And he was in the bathroom and the, I was uh, getting ready to shave. And the water was hot, and he was putting his hand up to touch the water, thinking it was cold, and I slapped his hand. And he looked at me, and he started to cry, and he went away, and he didn't know where else to come, so he came back to me. <laughs> and I, even in the moment, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, this is, this is my life. This is my life. I've sinned against you, and it hurts, but the only person that can help me is you. I have to return to the one that I've hurt. That's what, that's what happened with him as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I do not hesitate to assert that this is perhaps the most subtle and delicate test as to whether we've repented or whether we are, or whether we haven't, our attitude towards God. The one against whom David has sinned is God, and yet he desires above all God. He goes on to speak of that because of time I won't, but just that irony of I've sinned against you, my Abba, my Father, and yet I have nowhere else to go but you to be restored. This is the first aspect of repentance. Now let's look at the remainder of these different aspects, and I'm going to click through them. Uh, they're not being clicked through because they're, they're not important, but just because I think I want to give you this kind of whole idea. So go back to 2 Corinthians 7. The second term is translated vindication because he's speaking in regards to them having an earnestness to clear themselves. This is very important. I want you to think about this in your own life. I want you to think about this in the life of others. Because this, this, this vindication uh, speaks of defending oneself against various charges. Some people thought wrongly that the Corinthians were in some way trying to clear themselves of wrongdoing, you know, trying to get around the issue. But, but this sign of repentance is the desire that desires no longer in any way to be seen as one who condones the sin that they've done. I don't condone it. I vindicate myself of it. I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. This sign of repentance, I no longer want to be the way I was. I want to prove myself trustworthy. I want to get rid of my guilt. And Paul had no doubt accusing them in this severe letter. And now, because they received the severe letter, they want to prove to him that they're no longer holding on to that sinful life. Again, there's another expression of this earnestness that begins the list. No longer is that me. No longer is that my heart. Third attribute of a godly repentant sorrow, is a word that originally spoke of the idea of physical pain. The LSB translates the word as indignation. You see it there back in 2 Corinthians, indignation. Indignation is now, they are now opposed to their own actions. I'm, I'm opposed to me. I hate the shame and the actions that I brought upon the church and upon you, Paul. 
They're so angry at themselves for allowing themselves to entertain the rebellious thoughts that they're guilty of. So they despise the way they were. They despise what they had become. They, they were seduced away from righteousness and no longer do they want to be that way. It's like David when he understood how he had sinned and how God understood the sin. Automatically he's crushed. He's sorrowful. His heart wants to break. I see what I've become. I see who I am. I am vile in my own heart. I no longer want to be that way. We see that already in Psalm 51 in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. I, don't, I, I know who I am. I'm, and my very essence, I'm not trying to justify myself. I am not just wrong. I am horribly, dreadfully, powerfully wrong. This is indignation of the soul towards sin. Fourth quality is a repentant soul. That was fear. Fear, phobos. It's been a source of debate whether Paul's referring to the fear of God or the fear of Paul. We don't have to really split hairs on that. One gives birth to the other. If you fear God, you're going to fear his messenger, of course. But because the apostle speaks of the fear of God in chapter 7, verse 1, therefore having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The idea there is most likely this is what he's responding to, the fear, the fear of God. This is the heart of responding to God in light of the desperation and our need for forgiveness. It's a sign of being truly awakened to the fact that my conscience sees sin for what it really is. Fifth quality. Paul lists the same word used in chapter 7, verse 7, and he speaks about how the Corinthians uh, poured out their mourning to him. He uses the word longing. They're, they're longing. The longing for what? The longing to, to be made right with the one that they had wronged, namely Paul. This is the natural aching of the soul to be restored to the privileges that once was established through relationship in the Christian church and to each other. It's the longing that wants to be restored. No matter what it takes, I want to be made right with you. All indifference is swept away and instead is filled with longing. Sixth attribute. It's a, a word for zeal, holiness. Zeal speaks of holy je- jealousy that places all the desires on a particular object. It's like longing in a sense, but above this zeal too was listed in verse 7. So most likely he's referring to Paul as well. This longing, this zeal, I long for it and I zealously pursue it. They, they want so badly to be made right. Sinclair Ferguson, theologian, says, Restoration to willing Christian service and participation in the ministry of men God has raised up as leaders is a genuine sign of repentance. I want to be made right with you. And that's also, of course, David's heart as well. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And lastly, seventh attribute, the avenging of wrong. The avenging of wrong, which speaks of justice. Justice. Truly repentant people desire with all their might to be made right, to make right what was wrong. And this is super key, especially in relationships. It's the picture that we see with Zacchaeus who went immediately to everyone to make a restoration for all that he had taken to show the authenticity of his faith. Real repentance reaches beyond the superficial, reaches beyond the casual to make every effort to get back what they had lost in the past and to make it evident. When I was first saved, 
my discipler who led me to the Lord told me he had been a bartender. He uh, had been stealing money from the bar and uh, over a series of years and just decided that it was time he needed to go back and make it right. And he went back, he calculated all the money, and he gave it to them, the owners, and he said, I have, I've taken this from you. I, need, I just need to be restored to you. I'm giving this to you. Forgive me, I'm a Christian now, and I realize what I've done. And they were so shocked that he did that. They kept him as an employee. I mean, that's the employee you want, right? You want the guy who's seen his wrong and has restored it, and no one ever found out, no one ever told on him. It was his own heart. That's true repentance with zeal. I want to be made right. I want to be made right by avenging the wrong that I did. That's what I want you to watch for. Watching for earnestness, eagerness, indignation, fear, longing not to be taken to church discipline, zeal, need to flow from your heart. Lastly, Pilgrim's Progress, and this will be my conclusion. He says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway upon which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher, meaning a grave. And so I saw my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed off his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this, must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must hear the burden fall off my back, must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed be the man that was there, was put to shame for me. That's the response. And that's the response of not only when you first get saved, capital R, but lowercase for the rest of your life till heaven. Let's pray. Father God, so much information, so quickly done, and yet so important that we understand, if not the particulars of what was said, the weight of what was said, that we come to you as those who have fallen, both dead in our sin from the very beginning of our birth into this world, and then tempted and tried and tempted and giving in and tempted and sometimes so hard to resist and finding our lives in such a shambles. We wonder if even we are children of God because of what we have done. Has the first repentance taken place that the second might occur? And so we come to you now knowing and examining what that looks like and what that should be. And I ask for all who are here for those that don't know you but long to know you, that see their sin and wish to be rid of it, that they might hear these words and that they might be softened in their heart, that they would not be hardened, that they would sit there and come to you knowing that you are the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the one alone who has the provision for sin. 
them for those who are believers here who've gotten themselves trapped in an ongoing kind of life of, of morbidity and, and recklessness and for whatever reason now having no assurance even of their faith that they see this repentance and know how to act and know what must come next and with all their heart long to not sin against you and to be restored to you in love and in, in compassion. We pray for these things. Let this be a blessing to our group and to all who hear it, we ask in Christ's name, amen.